Just a note before we get into this episode, not long after we recorded it, there was a big development on the HSC cyber attack. The criminals involved provided a decryption tool. Initial results show that it works and it will allow the HSC to unlock any computers impacted by the ransomware attack. But testing is still underway and it could take weeks to bring all systems back online. Now, don't worry if any of those terms are confusing. Keep listening and all will be explained. But it is an important twist in the story to bear in mind. Welcome to the Journal.ie's The Explainer, where every week we take a deep dive into a different news story. I'm Aoife Barry, standing in for Sinead O'Carroll, and this week we ask, what is the impact of the HSE cyber attack? On the 14th of May, the Health Service Executive, or the HSE, announced that at 4am that morning, it had become aware it had suffered a major ransomware cyber attack. The attack meant that all of the HSE's IT systems had to be shut down, leading to disruptions in hospitals, cancellations of appointments, and a lack of access to electronic records. The event is the most significant cybercrime attack on the Irish state, and the HSE Chief Executive Paul Reid called it a major incident for the health service. And at the time of recording, the HSE's IT system is still down, while they make slow but steady progress in dealing with the impact. Reid has also warned that progress is volatile and the process for the fix will take weeks. So what is the impact of a cyber attack like this? And how worried should you be about your own data? To talk us through the answers to this week's question, we're joined by senior reporter at the journal.ie, Michelle Hennessy, and Brian Honan, cybersecurity expert and CEO of BH Consulting. So Michelle, let's start with you. Can you paint a picture of what it's like on the ground right now? So how is this hack actually impacting patients? Right. So for patients, there, I suppose, have been two main impacts. Either you had a test or a treatment uh, over the last week that has been cancelled to be scheduled again for a later date at some point. Or if you are in hospital or you've absolutely had to go into hospital for something, uh, some kind of emergency, you're facing really significant delays when you get in there. Um, So in terms of the cancellations, if we look at that first, a lot of appointments are still going ahead as planned. It can sort of depend on which hospital you're due to go to but in some hospitals they've had to cancel all of their outpatient clinics as well as as some elective inpatient and day case procedures and this is really unless they're time critical in, in those hospitals the impact has varied like i said from hospital to hospital but the hsc has a page on its website on hospital appointment updates if anyone is due to go in for, for some kind of treatment or procedure they can check that out to to see if how their hospital is affected uh, over the next week and probably beyond that um so you know it, it if you have it coming up in the next few weeks, it, it's probably worth checking that out ahead of time. If you have an appointment for an x-ray or cardiac diagnostics, your appointment may be rescheduled until after the issue has been fixed. Uh, we know that services like chemotherapy and dialysis have continued to operate as normal. Those have been really important services to keep in place. And of course, the emergency departments are still open, but you can't really say they're operating as normal. You know, they're, they're I suppose the, the clinicians are still operating as normal and that they all still know what they're doing, but they're under very, very significant pressure. And I mean, the emergency departments are busy places at the best of times. We're used to hearing about you know, people on trolleys and so on. And anyone who's ever been in an emergency department in Ireland has experience of being there for hours, even when you're just waiting for something straightforward like blood tests or an x-ray. So, I mean, this is really escalated that a lot and you know we've been told by the HSE over the last two or three weeks that our emergency departments are now returning to 2019 levels in terms of attendances so they were busy before this they were getting very
very busy. The emergency departments, they've had to go back to a pen and paper system. The clinicians, they can't just use a computer to check you in or to search for your previous medical records. All of the systems have had to be shut down. The systems in the laboratories are impacted. So it's taking even longer for those things like simple things like your bloods to come back. In terms of scans, you're also seeing significant delays because they can't pull those images up on computers anymore. And I mean, the key thing I suppose to point out here is that I don't want to frighten people. You still can and still will receive care and treatment. The doctors and the nurses, they're not hooked into a computer system. You know, they're, they're still human beings and they're professionals and they know how to diagnose and treat patients. And we've seen throughout the pandemic how well our healthcare staff have been able to manage in a crisis. This is just another crisis and it's, it, you know, it's a very considerable one. It just means things will take more time than they usually would. And if you're in hospital, you'll have to have a bit more patience, um, particularly if you're going through the emergency departments. So how is all of this then impacting on the HSE's response to the pandemic? The test and trace system was initially impacted, um, but in fairness to the HSE, they managed to turn that around and come up with a solution quite quickly. They opened up all of the test centres as walk-in centres and they're just telling people if you're symptomatic, you don't even really have to call your GP. You can if you want and they'll send you to one of those centres. But if you have symptoms, you can just go straight to whatever your your local test centre is. And the contact tracers are also telling close contacts to, to just walk in. You don't necessarily need an appointment. Vaccinations are still going ahead. That thankfully is a separate system and hasn't been impacted by this. And the timing of all of this really isn't great, to say the least. I mean, frontline healthcare workers have already faced three waves of COVID and everything that's come with that. Have we heard about how they're coping with all of this right now? Yeah, I mean, there's never good timing for something like this to happen, but this just just seems like the worst possible timing when the pressure has started to lift a little bit in in terms of the COVID impact on hospitals. And I mean, if we look even just at emergency departments alone, I spoke this week to Dr. Fergal Hickey. He's the president of the Irish Association of Emergency Medicine. uh, And I managed to catch him for, you know, the the brief 10 minutes that he actually had in his day to talk to somebody. He said they're they're really just up the walls. Um, He's a consultant in emergency medicine at Sligo General Hospital. And he was telling me that staff have had to switch to a pen and paper system. And that's for everything. So when you first come in, you're registered on pen and paper. Uh, There's a paper request for an x-ray that has to go with the patient. Uh, Then when it takes place, someone has to physically go look at the screen as it's being prepared by the radiographer. Now before, obviously, those x-ray images would have just gone in a computer system and the doctor would have been able to pull it up wherever. They now have to physically go and look at it. Um, And when it comes to blood work, Dr. Hickey said the results that would normally come back in about an hour are now taking seven or eight hours to come back because the way the labs have to operate now, it all has to be done manually. Uh, previously, they would have been able to work on a number of samples simultaneously. They have to work now in series. And, you know, you can imagine that because everything's being done manually, everything's on paper, they really have to be extra careful that, you know, you're not losing that piece of paper that came with the patient or that, that that's being, um you know, that's being moved around. In some hospitals, uh, the staff have had to act as runners between the labs and the wards or emergency departments, bringing the paper results back with them from the, the blood work. Uh, in others, they've been able to use a of a shoot system the blood samples would be sent up through a shoot now they're sending the paper results back down through it so they've, they've been able to come up with you know these kind of creative solutions and they are making it work and like i said patients are still being treated and you know given the, the best possible care but it, it is an awful lot of pressure on staff and they're relying on patients in many instances to give them information about their own medical history when they turn up uh, because they have difficulty accessing records it's not something they can just quickly pull up on a computer 
Now, there's also been on a different level another impact on staff in that their pay packets have been impacted. Uh, the HSE has said that staff will be paid despite the attack, but it, it has acknowledged that some issues may arise in relation to the amounts they receive because of problems with calculating allowances and overtime, so the sort of extras. Uh, they might get their, their basic pay, but... It, there are people who are going to be underpaid this week and, you know, potentially in the coming weeks, which is really a further kick in the teeth at a time when they're totally overwhelmed and having to change the way they work. Yeah, very difficult altogether. Like, Brian, let's turn to yourself now and, and get a bit of general context um, about what's been going on for people who maybe might not understand some of the terms that we were using. So can you tell us what is ransomware and Is there anything that we could compare what happened here with the HSE hack to in terms of like a more traditional crime, as you know, we might say? Sure, sure, Aoife. Ransomware is a type of malicious software or computer virus that criminals use to infect a company's network. And basically the whole purpose of ransomware is that once it infects your network, the criminals can do two things. First of all, they can take copies of the data off your network so they, they have copies of any information they may have compromised. And then secondly, what they can do is they can encrypt or scramble the information on your computers so that it's no longer available to you. Uh, the only way to get that information back is to rebuild the systems uh, as the HSE is doing now and restore from clean backups. Or the criminals say, pay us the ransom demand, pay us this amount of money, and uh, we'll give you the password or the key to unlock your data so that you can uh, access that data again. So I suppose to compare to a, a real world or real life crime, uh, it's, it's like kidnapping somebody and uh, demanding a ransom to, to, to return that person to their family. So like, how do these hackers actually gain access to a computer system like this and lock it down? Because, you know, I think for the average person, it's very hard to get your head around how this happens. What methods do they use? There, there are various ways they can get in. And I think the first thing we need to realize is that uh, there is no such thing as 100% security. Be that in the physical world, like none of our houses or offices or anything else are 100% secure. If somebody wants to break into your house or, or your building and they are motivated enough and they have, they're skilled enough and they have the right tools, they can get, they can get through. Like we, we've all seen the movies of James Bond or Eaton Hunt in, in Mission Impossible break, break into these secure facilities. So that there is no such thing as 100% security in the real world. That's the same in the cybersecurity world as well. We, uh, we can put uh, defense mechanisms, mechanisms in place, and uh, but there's, there's absolutely no guarantee that's going to keep criminals out. Now, typically how criminals break into to systems these days is that, uh, in particular, in relation to ransomware, there are two main ways they get in. One is by sending in fake emails into people to trick them into clicking on a, an attachment or a link in the email that will actually download a computer virus, uh, the ransomware virus onto their, their computer. And from there, that one computer will become, if you like, the beachhead in the, uh, the attack and the criminals will use that computer to try and compromise other and further systems in the network. So they, they work their way through. The other way is, is by trying to attack the remote access points that many companies would have for remote workers to access their networks. So uh, to their virtual private networks or or other remote gateways. If those remote gateways aren't 
secured or locked down, there, there can be vulnerabilities in them, uh, and vulnerabilities will be weaknesses in, in the system. You know, it may not be the latest update of software, or, or security patches may not have been applied on it, or indeed somebody could be using a weak password, and the criminals have got that password and are able to access the the, the company's remote gateways using using that weak password. So they're, they're primarily the two main avenues that criminals use uh, for ransomware attacks to get into uh, the organization. Now, now, there are other ways to do it, but uh, uh, I could be here for quite a while going through them all. They're, they're the, two, they're, they're the two, two, two main ways that, that they happen. And the email phishing ones is the most effective one for, for the criminals. Very interesting, especially in terms of the remote working, because obviously this year so many people um, have been working remotely. And Michelle, what do we know about the scale then of the attack on the HSE in terms of how far the hackers were able to go? Yeah, well, I mean, the thing is, and probably for good reason, the HSE hasn't, you know, given a huge amount of information on the exact scale other than to say that it's very significant. So we know that the hackers have had access to and that they currently have patient data. They appear to have had access to HSE contracts as well. But in terms of how much of it they have, that's not fully clear. We do know that the, the response, as in the you know the reaction from the HSE, what they had to do is they had to force a shutdown of the entire system. Now that wasn't caused by the hackers directly. I suppose that this is the the reaction by the HSE in order to curb any spread of you know if we could call it a virus, let's say, uh, and also so that they could go in and assess exactly you know what the hackers were doing behind the scenes. So at the moment there are around two thousand um, patient facing systems that are being put through a process of assessment and recovery. There are also 80,000 HSE devices. I mean, that's a huge amount uh, that are being assessed. And the HSE has said different sections will need to be brought back online in a structured, coordinated and safe way because they don't want to go back online uh, and potentially make things worse. Um, now, security experts are working through this server by server. They're trying to establish the extent of the information that may have been taken by the hackers. And their systems are parts of systems in voluntary hospitals that will be returning this week. Uh, but for other hospitals, it'll be a longer period of time, in some cases, several weeks for a full return of their system. The priority at the moment is bringing back systems such as diagnostic imaging, laboratory systems, radiation oncology. Progress has been made, the HSC said, in rebuilding integrated imaging systems for CT scans, X-rays and MRI scans. Uh, and this system is in place in over 60 locations. So, I mean, those are the, the real priorities at the moment. The cyber attack is continuing to have a particularly serious impact on radiation oncology and because medical staff haven't been able to access the kind of detailed individual treatment plans for patients that are really important for them to have. And of course, a patient, especially a patient who's very ill, isn't necessarily going to know the full details or remember the full details uh, that, that was in in that treatment plan for them. I mean, often patients don't have a full understanding of exactly the, the treatment that they're getting or even, you know, a full understanding of the diagnosis they've been given. So the, the HSE said it's clear that the data on some servers has been encrypted, but the full extent remains unknown at this point, they've said. Uh, they know that they will probably have lost some details of recent clinical activity, but the HSE said they anticipate that they'll be able to recover older patient records. And we, we keep talking here, I suppose, about these hackers, but do we actually know who we're talking about when we talk about the hackers? I mean, there's been some mentions of a criminal group called Wizard Spider. What do we know about all of this? Has any of it even been confirmed at this point? 
Yeah, so I suppose this is where the speculation comes in. I hate doing that, but I suppose it's important to talk about who it may be. So it's been suggested that the, the gang responsible is a Russian cybercrime gang called Wizard Spider. And these are skilled computer programmers and hackers. You know, we're talk- not talking about college kids sitting in their rooms hacking national healthcare systems. These are professional criminals uh, and potentially dangerous people. It's been suggested, though, that it could also be a bit more disparate, various individuals rather than one collective defined group. But whoever they are, it's clear that they don't care who they hurt or what impact they have on people's lives. And the hackers have, um, I mean, hackers around the world have targeted hospitals, uh, particularly during the pandemic. They've also targeted universities and pharmaceutical companies that are researching and developing COVID vaccines. So these are people who really just do not care. There's an example um, that's been around a lot of a psychiatric hospital in Finland that was targeted last year uh, and hackers stole medical records of 40,000 people. Now they not only sought a ransom from the hospital but they also emailed the individual patients and threatened to publish their therapy and mental health treatment records if they weren't paid. So they have targeted the individual patients as well as the larger institution. This appears to be the first time that uh, this, uh, this gang or whoever it is has successfully attacked a national healthcare system and ultimately, when I mean, you ask what do they want, they want money. Uh, and, you know, th- that's really what they're out to get. Uh, we know they've demanded a ransom from the HSC. The HSC has declined to say how much that is, but the figure of about $20 million to be paid in Bitcoin has been out there. It's also been suggested that the data they now have, whether that's patient data or HSC contracts, could be used for fraud over years. So not just in, in the short term. And we heard uh, Stephen Donnelly, the Minister for Health this week, confirming that data on, leaked on the on the dark net this week is HSE data. And that, that was reported earlier in the week. He's confirmed now that you know, that, that, that is potentially the data the, these hackers have. And this is presumably an attempt by the hackers to put pressure on the government. They're saying, you know, this is what we can do. You better pay up. Brian, was there anything you wanted to add there about your own experience, about what you know about the types of hackers that might be behind something like this? Uh, Michelle actually done a great job there uh, on covering everything. Uh, uh, she, she, she may have had an opportunity to change career with, with, with her knowledge there and everything. She wants to get into cybersecurity. <laughs> Thanks, Brian. We'll have a chat afterwards. <laughs> see what the terms are. Uh, well, look, Michelle is absolutely right, and uh, we, we actually we're using the word hackers here, but I prefer to call them criminals because at the end of the day, this is this this is what they are. These are criminals. And they are out to make money and they don't care who suffers or who hurts uh, in that process. And, you know, the HSE is the, the victim of a crime here. And unfortunately, all the staff that Michelle gave great coverage there earlier on of the difficulties they are having to do, they are collateral damage of, of this attack, as indeed are the patients uh, who are having treatments uh, delayed as as a result, but yeah, the, the, these are criminals. They're they're highly organised, highly professional, uh, well funded, uh, and uh, their motivation is to make money. As Michelle says, the, these are not the atypical image many people have of people who hack into in, in, into computers of, of of misguided teenagers, etc. These are criminal gangs, and they are well organised, located in countries uh, such as Russia, for, former Soviet Union countries as well, or other jurisdictions that either don't have cybercrime laws, so what they're doing within their own countries may not deem to be actually illegal, even though it's illegal here in Ireland, uh, or their governments, because of various reasons, maybe geopolitical reasons or, or, or corruption, etc., 
just turn a blind eye to what these gangs are doing. Indeed, many of these criminals, gangs operating out of Russia, uh, have uh, a test within their software to see is, is the computer they're about to, uh, compromise or in fact, is, is it based in Russia? Does it have a Russian keyboard? Does it have, uh, an IP address that belongs in Russia, et cetera? And if it does, they won't compromise or attack that computer because they don't want to bring uh, attention to themselves by the Russian authorities. So this kind of has been this laissez-faire attitude by uh, the Russian government towards the, these criminal gang activities because, I suppose, from a Russian government point of view, the the victims are all in, in the West. And, Michelle, do we know when this will be fixed? Have we been given any indication by um, the HSE or the government and how much it could actually cost? Yeah, I mean, the short answer to that is it's going to cost millions and it's going to take, at the very least, weeks to get back to where we were. Um, HSE CEO Paul Reid this week said the reality is that we're trying to restart 30 years of technology investment over a few days. And realistically, it'll be weeks rather than just days, he said. And he also said it will take millions to fix. Now, the HSE and the government said early on that they won't pay a ransom. But in some cases, with these types of ransomware attacks, the criminals are paid. So, you know, if, if further down the line, they change their minds there's a cost there, obviously, and that figure of, of $20 million has been around. Uh, if, if they did decide to pay that, that would be the cost. Um, but if we're talking about rebuilding, that's millions of euro and weeks, potentially months of time. And this is all while we're continuing to try to keep track of a deadly virus and a rollout of a vaccine nationally. So, I mean, it really is just the worst possible timing to have to do something like this. Yeah, I, th- I think it's, it's on that point there about paying the ransom that Michelle mentioned is that uh, if, if the if the demand is 20 million, I, I hear a lot of people saying, let's just pay 20 million. You know, the cost of this to uh, our healthcare system and the cost to fix, to, to replace and fix the affected systems is going to be much more expensive. So let's just pay the 20 million and get it over and done with. I think a key point that people are, are missing though is that even paying, the, even if you pay the ransom, you still have to go through the process of bringing your systems back online in a slow and methodical way to ensure they are not infected. Because you don't want to pay the ransom, bring the systems back online, and then suddenly be attacked again. And like paying the ransom is not like a light switch turning, you know, you pay the ransom, they give you the keys to unlock your data and everything is okay again. You still will have the time impact and the cost of rebuilding all your systems. So, you know, in my opinion, the ran- paying the ransom is not a, a shortcut to, to getting out of this problem. And that idea there of rebuilding all the affected systems basically from scratch, is that how you go about fixing it from a technical point of view? Yeah, very much so. You know, like particularly the systems that have been impacted, you, the only guarantee you have that they're clean is to rebuild them from, from, from scratch. The other systems that may not have been directly impacted by the ransomware software and you've taken them offline in a precautionary way, you, you probably will just uh, carry out a lot of testing on them to make sure that there's there's no sign of any malicious software on those systems. But all this takes time. It's a very manual process. You can automate some parts of it, but it's still a very time-consuming manual process. And I was going to ask you for my next question about exactly how hard it is to crack the encryption that the hackers have, have locked down the systems with. But based on what you're saying there, it's not an easy job. I think anybody can guess that. But is it extremely difficult to try and crack that? Yeah, so uh, the the software, the encryption software that uh, is being used in a lot of this ransomware is the same level 
of encryption software that we're using to protect our systems from a you know in, in legitimate businesses such as uh, our online banking, uh, our communications across the the internet. Uh, so. The, the encryption being used is very, very strong. And at the moment, some of it is, it's, you're unable to break the encryption. Uh, the only way to, to get around the encryption is if you know what the decryption key is or if there's some sort of mistake in the code that the developers, the ransomware developers may have put into their, their ransomware. There are all the uh, cybersecurity companies are regularly testing the software, uh, looking at ways to, to work around the encryption on, in, the, in this ransomware software. And Europol, uh, with the help of those cybersecurity companies, has a website called nomoransom.org. All the keys that we have, the industry has identified to unlock other strains of ransomware are available to freely download. So it's good to know that there is information out there for people, you know, about this whole thing, because it can be uh, hit some people by surprise. I'd imagine if, if it happened to them, um, you know, some people have been talking about being worried about their information getting out there, their private healthcare information getting out there and that potentially affecting their health insurance either now or in the future. Is that something that they should be worried about? Yeah, it's a, it's a very good question, Aoife, because uh, I've seen a lot of people discuss this on on Twitter and uh, on other social media platforms as well. So I suppose like the only uh, consolation I can possibly give to people on that is that uh, under the, the EU General Data Protection Regulation, uh, GDPR, uh, any insurance company or any company using data that has not been legitimately given to it, i.e. they go and, and copy the, the information the criminals have stolen. So, uh, that that is not allowed under the GDPR. Uh, so in effect, an insurance company using information that's been stolen from another company to determine your insurance, I think if if, if you could prove that happened, you would have a strong case to go to the data protection commissioner and. Uh, larger complaint with them. Yes, and no doubt people will uh, be glad to hear that. There is a, an article that we'll link to in our podcast article as well from Wired about um, a healthcare startup in Finland, which Michelle referenced earlier as well, and the impact that it had there on, on a data breach. So we'll link to that for people to kind of read about how things worked out in, in other countries. Let's move back to Ireland though now. And Brian, do we know what Guardi have said about their investigation? Like, have they given much information about how this investigation is going so far? Uh no, they haven't uh, publicly said a whole lot about it, Aoife, and that's to be expected. Uh, the Gardaí are conducting an investigation. It's, it's a live investigation. Obviously, they would need to keep the details of that investigation uh, confidential so that they can uh, hopefully uh, prosecute those be, be behind this. And, uh, you know, I think as a country, we actually are quite lucky. Uh, the Garda Computer Crime Unit is a, a highly skilled and highly motivated individuals in there. And uh, we are well regarded internationally with, with the team. They will also be working with the likes of Europol. Uh, so any data uh, and intelligence they can they can ha- gather from the HSE hack will be shared with Europol and with Interpol so that other police forces can look at that information. And by all those police forces sharing the information, Europol and Interpol can put together an intelligence briefing and and at some stage hopefully identify who, who are the individuals behind these crimes and uh, it, you know if they can get cooperation from uh, the countries uh, those individuals are 
hopefully arrest them or keep keep them under under surveillance and if they ever leave those countries and move into a, a jurisdiction that uh, is friendly towards uh, Ireland or the West uh, arrest those individuals and the point to raise there about the the data that they can share with Europol and other police forces is something that we need to think about from any other companies that have been hit by cybercrime, whether that's ransomware or not, it is important to report the crime to Angarda Siakana uh, so that Angarda Siakana can have that, that information and, and that intelligence behind your attack. Now, they may not be able to reach out and, and arrest the individuals straight away, but by sharing this information with Europol and other police forces over time, all that intelligence does make uh, a difference and I would urge people, you know, do approach on Garden Shukon and the, the, the cybercrime unit. Report any cybercrimes you've been impacted with, be that ransomware or not, so that we can have more data and arrest those who are behind us. And we know as well, you were saying there obviously about the Guardi's involvement and, and going forward to Europol and things like that. And, and uh, the defence forces are also involved in this current investigation, which I know I hadn't realised um, they have a very um, extensive cyber defence capability. So they're, they're involved there too. You know, and speaking about the state's approach to cybercrime, like, does Ireland differ in any way from how we fight it, you know, compared to other countries? Do we invest more or less money in it? What do we know about this particular side of things? Yeah, the, there's a lot of commentary going around and uh, about about our state of readiness. And uh, in my opinion, we we are behind the curve. Various governments have underinvested, and like we are a unique country, even within the EU, with regards to cybersecurity. Firstly, we're non-aligned. Uh, there's not many other countries that are 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 non-aligned, so we don't have a big military in industrial complex or anything like that. We, we are we are a defence-focused uh, country. We are highly uh, dependent on technology, uh, both from uh, our businesses, but also from, from our economy. If you take a look at all the foreign direct investment that has come into the country with regards to all the IT companies, pharmaceutical companies, financial companies, all with a lot of highly valuable intellectual property, highly valuable in information. And, you know, all the data centers that we've located here, we, you know, we are the headquarters for uh, many of the, the large IT uh, multinationals, uh, the majority of the European cloud for Amazon, uh, Microsoft, etc., is run out of Dublin and out of the data centers, data centers here in Ireland. So we are a large storage of data, not just for Irish uh, citizens and Irish companies, but companies across Europe and across the globe. So we are a nice, if you like, juicy, ripe target. You know, criminals don't care where you're located, uh, and most cybercrime is 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 same as real crime. It's it's crime of opportunity. But there are other cybersecurity threats out there, be that uh, in industrial espionage facilitated by, facilitated by cyber attacks, uh, nation state attacks. We do need to up our game a lot in this. Uh, we don't have a national security strategy, which is strange. You know, it's, it, it's not a good place to be. We have a national center for national cybersecurity center which historically has been underfunded. There's a lot of very good devoted individuals in, in that team and Defence Force in Garda Shikona and indeed the Data Protection Commissioner's Office, but they've historically been under, underfunded. We haven't got 
an intelligence infrastructure to, to, to support and deal with cyber threats against the nation. And, uh, yeah, the government does, uh, the government needs to take a more robust, proactive measure for cybersecurity at a national level. And Brian, when you say that Ireland is non-aligned, what do you mean by that? And what kind of impact would that have then on the state's response to cybercrime? Historically, if, if you're uh, aligned with by treaty, say, for example, with NATO, etc., you, your your defence forces are trained differently. The, the motivations are different. It's attack and defence that your, your, your capabilities are. We're non-aligned, so our uh, focus is purely on defence. And that that that's the main main reason there we within the eu uh and particularly on, on cyber like the, the the national center the national cyber security center will be working closely with the computer emergency response teams and national cyber security centers of other countries across the world there is very good cooperation amongst those uh amongst the countries and that's facilitated by the european agency for cyber security uh, anisa which is based in greece so that there is there there is good cooperation at, at those levels. I'm talking more so uh, from a a national level as a country. Finishing up with the fact that this is you know everything we're talking about here has been happening at, at a state level. We're talking about the huge systems behind the HSE, but this this sort of ransomware attack um, can also happen at a very small scale to individuals. So for anybody listening to this now who's kind of worried about potentially it happening to them, what are the best ways to prevent this from happening to you? Sure, uh, and I, the, that's a very valid point you made there, Aoife. Like this attack is rare because it's against uh, the the uh, national health system of a country. But ransomware attacks are not rare; they're happening uh, quite a lot. There is a report uh, just published the other day about one one uh, ransomware gang called Darkside. In the not, last nine months, they've made nineteen million dollars. You know, when I say these are highly motivated and they're looking for money, you can see why from this $90 million at play there. Uh, but we've dealt, we, we've, we've assisted, uh, many companies here in Ireland who've been hit by ransomware. Uh, we've helped them recover from them. And there's also ransomware designed to hit individual computers. And the criminals are very clever behind this. So if, if they were to hit your computer, for example, your personal home computer, they would, uh, have the ransom demand at a point say around 150 200 euro or you're kind of saying that's just enough for me to pay to get my information back but not enough for me to to sort of say you know it's not too expensive for me to say well, let's forget about it i'm going to buy a new computer uh, so they play the psychology there but the advice we give not just individuals but the companies would be firstly make sure you've got good backups of your inf- of your data that the backups are secure and they're not that the backup is not located on your computer or attached to your computer, that it is separate so that you can uh, be confident that if something goes wrong with your computer, be that a ransomware attack or it breaks down or you've got or some other disaster in your business or, or, or home that wipes out your computer, you at least get your information back. Have your systems patched and updated with the latest, latest software. Uh, and this goes whether you're using a Macintosh, Linux or uh Windows PCs, uh, similarly have up-to-date antivirus software installed on all your computers. I would also recommend if you can, and particularly for companies, don't have people using their computer with administrative privileges. Uh, have an account that is, is, has basic privileges that allows you to do your day-to-day work. But if you need to do anything 
and you can install new software systems, etc., that you use an admin, a, a higher level uh, account, like an administrator account. Uh, because if you're logged on to your computer as, a, as, as an administrator, that means you have access to everything. You can install whatever software you want. Uh, but if you get, if you, if your system gets infected with a ransomware, ransomware or other virus, that virus now has the same level of access as you. So back up your data, keep your software patched and updated, up-to-date antivirus software, and use ordinary user accounts on a day-to-day basis. Thanks, Brian, for running us through all of that, and to Michelle for running us through the latest on that HSE cyber attack. Thanks, Eva. Thanks, Eva. You're very welcome. Thank you for listening to The Explainer, and a big thank you to Brian and Michelle for joining us today. This episode of The Explainer was brought to you by producers Aoife Barry, that's me, and of course, Nikki Ryan. If you want to support The Explainer, there are a few things you can do. You could head to thejournal.ie forward slash contribute to become a monthly subscriber. You can also leave us a review and a rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. That is such a great way to make sure other people discover the podcast, listen to it, and love it too. Thank you, and catch you next time.